0: Welcome to Jersey Justice, a civil law podcast that shares practical tips and stories about personal and workplace injuries. Join two of the brightest New Jersey injury attorneys, Gerald Clark and Mark Morris of Clark Law Firm, as they take you behind the scenes of justice and civil law. But first, a quick disclaimer. The information shared on this podcast is for general information purposes only, Nothing on this site should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create and does not constitute an attorney-client relationship.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome back. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the pre-suit investigation and evidence-gathering process in New Jersey. This is really important because this is going to give you guys a lot of information on what goes on behind the scenes and what really needs to happen. Today, I'm here with Gerald Clark and Mark Morris, and I'm going to start off the conversation by going to Jerry. Give us a summary of what we're going to cover today.
2: When you have a case like this, we're talking like about construction injury cases, workplace setting cases. It's really important to gather the evidence because if you can't prove your case, you can't win your case. And it's super important to gather evidence early on because that's when the evidence is fresh, the surveillance video hasn't been recorded over, yet. witnesses are still around, the memory is still fresh. So that's what that's about. It's about jumping on it right away, gathering the information that will be critical to help the case get won in court.
1: Yeah, and I think that's really important and you know some of the things we are going to even talk about the role that OSHA plays in workplace injury investigations. We're going to be talking about the importance of giving notice of a claim and also sending an evidence preservation letter and many other things. But those are just, you know, some overviews. So, Jerry, maybe you can talk to us a little bit about, you know, the role of OSHA, because that plays a huge role when it comes to workplace injuries. And also, I'm just curious to know if there's other organizations that, you know, injured workers need to be aware of when it comes to injuries, let's say if they were injured on a construction job site?
2: So in terms of OSHA, OSHA is the federal agency. It's part of the United States Department of Labor. The head of the Department of Labor is a cabinet-level position in the president's cabinet. And the Department of Labor enforces the OSHA rules and regulations. And All throughout the United States and its territories, there are OSHA offices. I believe in New Jersey, there is an OSHA office in North Jersey, and there is an OSHA office in South Jersey, Marlton. And OSHA has investigators. I think they are called occupational health and safety officers. And their job is to investigate hazardous workplace conditions to educate employers and, if necessary, to find employers that don't follow the OSHA safety rules, both in construction sites, in factories, in industry, and other workplace settings. So OSHA is the most important. Now, whether or not OSHA comes out to a construction site or responds to an injury often depends on the funding levels. So like, Congress will fund OSHA, and depending on the budgets each year, Some administrations will give more money to protecting workers, and some administrations will give less money and whoever's in power. And if they have less money, they hire less investigators, and then they can't investigate the sites. So basically what happens is if there's an injury and someone calls OSHA, if it's a very bad injury or a fatal injury or something that's very obviously went awry, often the police will call the local OSHA office and the investigator will come out. And the investigator will take pictures and they will interview witnesses and determine if there's been a violation. Now, if there's been a violation, that doesn't do much for the worker itself. What happens is the employer will get fined. It's usually maybe a thousand bucks or a few thousand dollars. Seven or ten thousand dollars would be a lot in my experience, which is nothing compared to the injuries that the employee sustains in many cases. And that money doesn't go to the employee, it goes to, back to OSHA, as I understand it. But what is very helpful with that investigation is, as part of this, as an attorney experience in doing workplace injury cases, is we can get that information from OSHA, we can get their investigation. We can get the photos, the statements, and all of that can be very, very helpful in proving a case. So that's important in terms of the role of OSHA coming into the, the worksite and investigating it.
3: Jerry said it. Obviously, OSHA applies on all construction sites, but OSHA can't be everywhere at once. It's a limited government agency. So you're not going to have that perfect scenario where OSHA came out and investigated and gave this thorough report on every job site. So even though there may have been OSHA violations and an incident that should have been reported to OSHA and investigated by OSHA, you're just not going to have that in a lot of these construction injury cases. But you definitely want someone to do is to look for it.
1: Yeah. And can you guys talk a little bit also about the, you know, the giving notice of a claim and sending an evidence preservation letter?
2: This podcast, it's good for people that want to know behind the scenes and stuff, but it's also good for attorneys, I would say. And a lot of this is more, I would say, for attorneys, because once the client picked a good lawyer that knows what they're doing, they shouldn't really have to worry about this stuff too much. Whether or not OSHA comes out and does an investigation, it could take a long time to get their investigation materials. So really, it's a good idea for the attorney or law firm to send out an investigator, depending on the facts of the case and depending on the timing and everything. And then that investigator can do what OSHA would do, which is take pictures, gather evidence, and that sort of thing. Also, like kind of legally speaking for other attorneys, you have to jump on cases right away because there could be notice of claim issues. So for example, if A claim is brought against a public entity, which would be like a government agency or any kind of a government-related thing in New Jersey. A notice of claim probably has to be filed, and that's usually within 90 days. So that's important legally for a notice of claim just to satisfy legal requirements. If that's not done, the case could be thrown out depending on the facts and the circumstances and who's involved. But it's also a good idea just to give notice that it even happened, to fill out a report, to say, hey, this happened to me. Because when these insurance companies and defense attorneys get involved, the first thing they're going to do is question whether or not it even happened and determine, hey, is this a fraud? Is someone you know, faking that an incident happened? Man, a lot of times that can get bungled early on, and so it's important for that notice of claim form for a report to be filled out and for the authorities to be contacted. And also, in terms of contacting OSHA, anyone can call a local office and report a safety violation. I believe they have an 800 number for that, and it can be done anonymously because the whole point behind it is that workers don't feel like they'll be intimidated or will have get fired or something for doing this. So it is anonymous and anyone can report a violation even if someone hasn't been hurt. I think there's things called an imminent safety hazard where OSHA can come out and, and stop issue a stop work order on the job. I believe they can do that. Don't quote me on a hundred percent, but there's things they can do when there's an imminent hazard to a worker.
1: Thank you for that. And actually, we will provide all of that information and the resources for our audience so they can refer to that if they need it. Thank you.
3: Yeah, And just kind of, I guess, jumping off from that, there's OSHA isn't the only, I guess, public resource that we would try and track down in a lot of these construction cases. Oftentimes, if it's a big job, there's going to be a town file. So we will send out a letter to the town requesting that they make the town file available for inspection. We, usually it's an Oprah request, and sometimes they'll just produce the documents, or if it's a big job, we'll literally get in the car and drive down to whichever municipality was where this happened. And spread out everything from architectural plans to permits for sewer opening to make sure that, number one, we're identifying all of the right parties in the case, like all the people that should be sued, you know, that claim should be brought against. And then also just to see if there's any helpful nuggets in there, like, hey, you were, you know, told on this day that there's too many workers on the roofs without fall protection or that, you know, hey, this trench was noted to be potential collapse issue. You know, it's rare that you find those things, but in the event that they're there, it's, it's definitely something you'd want to try and track
1: down. Great point, Smart. Thank you for sharing that.
2: Yeah. The other thing too on that, Dimple, is under like, not to get too legal easy here about, but under New Jersey law, there's an administrative code and there's a regulation that says the contractor on the building permit is required to make sure that that job is done in a safe manner. So it's critical to identify who the contractor is on the building permit. It is usually a general contractor, and they have a responsibility to make sure the safety rules are followed. Yeah, so that's important too.
1: Yeah, thanks for thanks for sharing that as well. And Jerry and, and Mark, whoever wants to take this one first, if you can shed a little bit of light in terms of the process of witnesses taking the right type of photos and videos and conducting the on site investigation, because I think that that's so critical to get the right evidence at that time. And a lot of times because people don't know what evidence to gather, or they miss certain steps of this process. It can really, you know, impact their claim negatively because they don't have all the proof that they should have gathered right on the spot. So what are some pointers for that in the process? This is this one's
3: kind of a hybrid. I think some of what we've said has been helpful to people who get hurt. Some might be helpful to attorneys. This one's kind of right in the middle. But so in terms of, I guess, early investigation, what you want to gather in these cases, what we're supposed to show, and I think we've touched on it, is that the defendants knew that the workers were working in an unsafe way. And down the road, the low-hanging fruit in these cases is for the defense to blame the worker, but that's not how these cases are supposed to go. So what we're trying to find early on is that the defendants knew that the work was being done unsafely and didn't do anything about that. So the way we can show that is by showing that they had something called construct notice where people were working in a dangerous way on this job site in a general sense. And therefore, it's more likely than not that they knew or should have known that first who was injured was also working in that safe, unsafe way where they got hurt. The best case scenario, which I think we actually have had the specific case or scenario isn't coming to mind, but would be essentially the defendants, the general contractors standing right there watching the worker work in the unsafe way that they became hurt. And that would be, that would, that would just be actual note that they knew that the worker was working in an unsafe way when they got hurt. And Jerry, I can remember we had a case. It was a guy was installing, I think like floor joists and he was up on the second story and he didn't have fall protection. I think he was 10 feet up. He was on you know, the top of that. About to do the joint for the, the second store, which are like the, the main beams for the floor. And he fell and he got really hurt. And we were doing some of our early investigation and we found a promotional video for the general contractor or the contractor above the company our guy was working for. And in the promotional video, they have their guys with their like shirts and logos on. Standing there, pointing at the work as workers are working with no fall protection, doing the exact same thing that our guy was doing when he fell down and got hurt. So, in that case, we had a perfect smoking gun right there. And it was a fun deposition.
2: We're working on a case. This is a case where uh, they were building a hotel in North Jersey, forklift that was approved to lift workers. On the job site, the case alleges that the workers were put in these job made boxes. And it's also alleged that. The general contractor on the site knew about that, allowed it to exist. It's very important in these cases to prove that the general contractor knew about the hazard or took a blind eye to the, the hazard or let hazards generally exist, meaning OSHA violations on the job, often because, as we've said before, it costs money and it, to follow the rules and enforce the rules when they're trying to maximize profits. So we had one particular case where the contractor was denying that they knew that they ever saw. And I don't know if I can share my screen. I might be able to. In our investigation, we were able to find this photo, which was taken 10 days before the worker in our case where the the job made box collapsed. And it showed the people from the general contractor actually looking at workers in a job-made box on that very job site 10 days before. So that was very helpful in showing that they knew that they had knowledge. So this is the kind of investigation documents that's super important to get in these cases. You know, they deny that workers were ever in boxes before, and then then they denied Knowing workers were in boxes before, and because of the investigation that we did and being very aggressive, supporting our clients' rights, we were able to dig up that and many similar photos which on that very job, which showed the very thing that they denied took place. That stuff's very important in the investigation. And the earlier you can get that stuff, the better it is.
1: So with that whole investigation process, I mean, for this particular scenario that you just presented, How long did that whole process take to really make some leeway?
2: That's a great question, Dimple. Generally speaking, you know, this was before COVID. We would generally tell people that once a case is put in suit, it can take anywhere from like one year to three years to be over. Or because of COVID and a lot of stuff, this case is still going on. It happened in 2014. The case was filed in 2016, but we have a trial coming up. So hopefully we're getting towards the end. So it takes long, and they don't turn these pictures up easily. It takes a lot of fighting and a lot of zealous legal advocacy to to get that kind of thing.
1: So on that note, do you think that some you know lawyers give up too easily because they just are moving on to the next thing, and it's too difficult to get all of that evidence, or you know, get permission to have access to those files?
2: it happens all the time. I took a deposition two days ago on a case, and we do a lot of these construction injury cases. And on this particular job site, the developer, they were building one of those box stores where they sell stuff really cheap. And this was a a large national chain that was building this store, and a worker was up on scaffolding, installing the siding. The scaffolding had no fall protection. The worker fell, was severely injured. And we got their initial discovery responses. Discovery responses is is written questions that they answer in the case about basic questions about, hey, what happened and who's who and turn over any documents you have. And they're sworn under oath, the answers. And these answers sworn under oath, you know, we ask for basic things like your project file, which is the file for the construction job with the contracts and the bids and the checks and the letters and the photos and the building plans kind of things you would have in a construction file. And they answered these sworn discovery responses saying they didn't have any of that. They had no file. And then they provided an affidavit from a principal from the company saying, we had no involvement with the construction job. In fact, we had no interest in it. And I looked at these, and having done so many of these cases, I highly suspected those answers were fraudulent. And I told the lawyer that I wrote him a letter. I said, we're not dismissing the case. They asked us to dismiss the case based on the affidavit that they had nothing to do with anything. And I said, I highly suspect your answers are largely fraudulent. And I suggest you talk to your client and, and change them and review them. And he never did that. We took the deposition two days ago. Lo and behold, the answers were absolutely fraudulent. So much so that the attorney pled the Fifth Amendment in a, in a civil deposition in response to questions. Because one of the questions was, please produce any progress photos you have related to the job. And the answer was none. No progress photos. And I said, why did you answer none to that? And he ended up taking the Fifth Amendment direct, which means directing the witness not to answer the question because his answer might tend to incriminate him. I suspect the lawyer did that and provided those answers because most lawyers would just, oh, okay, that must be it. Let me sign the dismissal and move on to the next one. But we don't, we don't do that. We've done a lot of these. Generally, we've done a lot of these cases. We know what we're looking for. And in just about every case I've had like this, They never turn over the important materials right away. It requires motions and court orders and a lot of work. Basically, what happens is these insurance companies are often funded to the tune of billions of dollars, and they're just looking to wear ordinary people down. They're looking to wear down the lawyers. They're looking to outspend them and slog them down in court so that they can avoid paying for the results of their conduct. Which is workers getting injured really bad.
1: I just want to add one thing, Mark, and then you got the mic. I think that's really important because with insurance companies, their goal is to, you know, spend the least amount of money and give out the least amount of settlement. And for an injured party who's not knowledgeable about this stuff, you know, the insurance company might say, Oh, we're gonna give you fifty thousand dollars and they don't realize that their injury may be worth two million dollars and they're just uninformed, right? And I think it's so important that these workers and their families are informed because if they know what their rights are, they know what they may be entitled to based on the type of injury, based on the type of suffering and loss of wages, all of those things, I think they can get a better outcome. But it's that lack of knowledge that really the insurance companies, in my opinion, take advantage of these poor people because, you know, their job is not to give out money like it's free. And that's why lawyers have to fight for that really hard. And even to get different things like the evidence and the photos and all that. But that, to me, that's the difference between a good lawyer and a mediocre lawyer is one that's going to go above and beyond to get all the documents, the pictures, the evidence, the things that are locked up in vaults to actually fight for their clients. So that's that's my opinion. And Mark, I'd love to hear what you have to say.
3: No, it's, you're absolutely right. And Jerry's absolutely right there. It's. Pretty Much every single one of these construction cases, it's the same thing. You get these non responsive answers, and we do something called a more request for more specific answers to the interrogatories, the question the answers that were sent out. And then sometimes we get a response back, but more often than not, we have to make an application with the court to get the defendants to answer these basic questions. And then to Jerry's point, talking about something like their you know, job site photos or a project file, we've had cases where they say, you know, not applicable objection, or we don't have a project file. And then after rounds and rounds of motion to application they give us the project file, which is an entire room in a warehouse filled with documents relating to the project that we've been asked. Mm-hmm. So it's, and you see in every case, it's just a matter of on uh, what scale you see it there. And just kind of jumping off one of the last things that Jerry said, talking about. The insurance companies. I, I don't remember which one it was, but essentially there was like a PowerPoint presentation put out to adjusters. And I think it's a picture of a person like hanging from a rope above an alligator. And the caption is delay claims, delay, delay, delay. People will either give up hope and just dismiss the case or they'll die and the case will be less valuable because they're dead. There's no more pain and suffering. So there's You know, every commercial you you see when you're watching sports or or whatever, it's some cute little mascot or you're in good hands or something like that. But the the game is to pay out the least amount on the claims and to pay out as few claims as possible. So you absolutely need the right attorney that's going to keep fighting. And especially with these construction cases, push through that non-responsive answer, non-responsive answer to get the things you need to prove your case.
1: And also I would say, I think, you know, for the injured client, it's important for them also to realize like these things take time and it's important to be patient. You know, if your case is valid, there's evidence there in your favor, you have a good legal team on your side, you can get a favorable outcome, but it it doesn't happen overnight and you do have to be patient with it. You know, you can take what the insurance company offers you, Or you can wait and you can get the proper settlement that you're entitled to based on your injuries and the evidence. So I think it's about educating clients to can imagine that clients would get impatient and and it's understandable, right? Because they're suffering, they don't have income coming in, things like that, or they're not compensated for the type of injury that they receive. So what I want to know is how do you guys have those difficult conversations with your clients to educate them and say, hey, this is the course of action we're going to take. And this is why we're doing things the way we are. This is why it takes long, this time period, to get this done. And Dimple, I,
3: we kind of try and set that up from the
1: client intake is our
3: first some of our first interactions with the client. And the example we've talked about being a McDonald's or a fast food chain versus steak restaurant, our clients know that. We tell them, you know, we're selective about the cases we take. And it's not all a smokescreen or beating our chest when we say that we prepare cases, you know, to try them. Because we often find that by working the case up, which takes time, certainly takes more time than just taking the first offer that the insurance company gives you. But we find by working the case up for trial, preparing for trial and being ready for trial, that that often is the stage at which the insurance company will kind of give their best offer. Because I always tell clients that it's not a game because it's their lives but it it a little bit is a game where you're playing poker or or chicken and it's who's going to fold. And a lot of firms early on will push their cards in. They want to take the low hanging fruit, the money that's there. And that's just not how we operate. Look, there's some cases it'll just be so cut and dry that, you know, hey, it's a limited insurance policy. The person's really badly injured. Here's the money. But that's rare. You know, when one of those cases comes through the door, it's it's the exception, not the norm.
1: Yeah. So Mark, I have a pop quiz for you. So listen yeah. up, Mark. Which would you pick? Would you pick McDonald's or the steakhouse? The
3: steakhouse. I would I would go medium rare and I would choose the steakhouse. And if the order takes a little bit longer to come out, that's okay because I'm not going to feel as bad. Because I'll get to go back and do it again. That's the thing. We've cl- they don't get the client doesn't get to say, you know what? That settlement I took, that was a little light. I'm gonna go back and, and five years from now, because I'm still in a lot of pain and ask for more money. You can't do that. So that's why we kind of try and make sure that they're positioned and they understand all that.
1: Good answer. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I think when you bring it up that way, it helps the audience understand because you're painting a picture for them, like what's really the difference between, you know, when you go to McDonald's, when you go to a steakhouse, then there is a difference, right? You go to McDonald's, your food's probably sitting there cold and you get it really quickly. But then you're at the steakhouse and you're going to sit there, you're going to wait, you're going to enjoy the experience and maybe you're hungry and maybe you'll get a little bit of bread. So maybe it's a little bit of help coming in, but then it's not the full settlement because that has to be, you know, worked on. Right. So great example. Thank you for sharing that. And Jerry, what else do you want to share about this whole investigation and process? I think that's it. I think we
2: covered it. And I think we're pretty good for now for this episode.
1: Wonderful. All right, you guys heard that. We'll see you guys on the next episode. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure that you share this out to your friends and you subscribe to the show because we're going to be putting out a lot of great content.
0: And there you have it, folks, another episode of Jersey Justice Podcast. If you're loving what you're hearing, it's time to hit that subscribe button on Apple, YouTube, and Spotify Podcasts. And don't forget to leave us a review online. Share this podcast with your friends and become their legal hero. Dive into more episodes at JerseyJusticePodcast.com or ClarkLawNJ.com and check out our show notes for more information. If you're navigating legal issues and need a guiding light or just a phone call away, call us at 1-877-841-8855. Again, one 841 8855 Until next time, Jersey Justice Warriors, stay empowered and informed.